Good morning, church. <laughs> Bonus points. Well done. Good morning. Do you have a favorite life verse? You know, a life verse? The Dictionary of Christianese website, which apparently exists, uh, the Dictionary of Christianese website defines uh, a life verse as a Bible verse that a Christian believes to be specifically representative or predictive of his or her life. So the good news is, since the, the verse is personal and specific to each of us, there is no wrong answer. What, you know, the verse that you choose or that you feel an affinity with is your verse. Uh, so, what's your verse? On Facebook, I asked this question a few days ago, and I got some really great responses. And if you didn't get a chance to do that, I would love it if you took a chance and, and went on my Facebook and found that thread and, and added yours. I'd love to hear not only what it is, but why it speaks to you. I just ask, please don't go on Facebook during the sermon. Wait till afterwards. <laughs> of the verses that were shared with me, there are passages about hope, encouragement, peace, and love. Verses about submitting to God's will and trusting in His strength to protect us. There were verses about renewing our minds and shifting our perspectives and that everything that we do brings God glory. I'll share the verse that I identified as my life verse in a moment. But first I want to talk about something I've noticed it affects me, and actually I think it affects every single one of us. To tee it up, you might not know this, but we, as a culture, we have a new collective response to the question, how are you? It used to be that if you said to someone, hey, how, how are you doing? They would respond, let's try, how are you? Yeah, good. People typically would say either, how are you, good, or fine. Those of you who have teenagers are very used to this, probably. But researchers have noticed that our collective community response to that question is no longer good or fine. The response has become, oh, I am so busy. Anybody relate to that? Busyness. We have a tendency to be too busy and to take on too much. And part of the reason is, is that our culture glorifies busyness. For example, Harvard did a study in the United States where they described this fictional woman named Janet, and to one group they described her as wearing headphones, and to the other group they described her as wearing a Bluetooth headset. Janet was seen as having a higher status when she was wearing the Bluetooth headset. And to be clear, this is cultural. This is us. We glorify busyness. When, we, when that exact same study was done with a group of Italians, they identified Janet wearing headphones as having the higher status symbol. See, they equated leisure as a mark of higher status. We don't. And so this study might reveal to us something about how we have collectively come to see busyness as a virtue. Of course, busyness can actually have some pretty significant drawbacks for us, and the tricky thing is how pervasive it is in our culture, especially here in the Bay Area. And we're all susceptible to this, and it's, it's not necessarily malicious, uh, but it's pervasive, it undermines us, 
and we all buy into it. So for example, we have students fighting with their parents for permission to take one more AP class, just so they can keep up with their peers. That's in addition to the average of eight hours of school, the average of five hours of homework, sports, practices, and games, extracurriculars, hobbies, work, and if they're lucky, church, dinner, and sleep. And us adults are as equally susceptible to this. In addition to the increasingly long hours expected in a normal work week, parents spend evenings chauffeuring kids around or pursuing their own health through a sports team or gym or, uh, or, or book club, maybe. Not to mention the increasing expectation that at night you check your work email on home and maybe get in an hour or two before bed. Add to both of these groups the added burden brought on by smartphones and social media. Studies show that we touch our phones over 2,600 times a day. And we spend almost two hours daily on social media. That's enough to make us go crazy. And in fact, Edward Hallowell, a psychiatrist and author, he wrote about how he knew he had crossed the dark line from busy to crazy busy while staying at a vacation home that didn't have cell phone reception, but it did have a rotary phone. Some of you know what I'm talking about. See, back in the day, phones attached to walls, and they had a cord. If you were lucky, you had a really long one, so you could take the phone into the closet and have private conversations where your parents couldn't hear. But it gets worse. We know phones as having buttons or, or you know, images on the screen that look like buttons, but they used to have these rotary things. You put your finger in a hole, and you'd have to go, like, bring it down, and then wait for this thing to turn all the way back. It took an eternity. And if you had someone whose number had nines and zeros in it, just stop being friends with them, because nobody has time to make that phone call. And so the psychiatrist, Hallowell, uh, he was getting upset at the phone. But he stopped, he calmed himself, and he timed how long it actually took to dial that phone. 11 seconds. What a fool I had become, he writes. I had become a man in a hurry, even when I had no need to hurry. Guilty. We're susceptible to that in all areas of our life. How about driving on the freeway? We feel this need to hurry, to rush, to drive quickly, to get there soon, even... You know, even if we're not, you know, late. And don't get me started on the people who sit at a green light texting. Yeah. So Dr. Hallowell listed 26 overlapping reasons that we all fall into this trap of being overly busy. A few are that it comes from our cell phones being so easily accessible. I was at a Fuller class two weeks ago, and we talked about kind of these different eras, the, you know, uh, pre-modern, post-modern, uh, modern, post-modern, post-post-modern, and we're kind of in this new era that started about 10 years ago, brought about the onset of the iPhone. We now carry around in our pockets truth and knowledge. It's decentralized power. It's, uh, it's, it's shifting us. It's, it's really, really fascinating. It's happening right now, and you know, sociologists are trying to observe and describe what's happening as it's happening. It's really cool. I can nerd out on that. Um, so, but... One of the reasons we can be so busy are cell phones. It changes things. Some of us get a high off of being busy. For some, busyness is a status symbol. 
Others are afraid they'll be left out if they slow down. For some, busyness helps us avoid life's really big issues. Death, global warming, AIDS, terrorism. By running from task to task. Can you guys relate to these? I can. Maybe there's other things you might recognize. Busyness shields you from, protects you from, helps you avoid. I'm not immune to this. In fact, I'm as guilty as they come. You see, I love Jesus. I love this church. I love my job. And because of this, I have a tendency to take on too much. I, too, have a tendency towards long hours, not taking days off, having poor boundaries, essentially buying into the cultural lie of the virtue of busyness. To be very honest with you, I can neglect my own spiritual life by being too busy. I'm so busy doing things for Jesus that I don't stop and spend enough time with Jesus. Am I the only one? Earlier I asked you about your life verse, and now I ask you a different question. Which Bible character do you most relate to? If you were a character from the Bible, which one would you be? Take a second, let you... Maybe it's Jesus. Abraham, going on faith. Peter, denying and then being restored. Judas. Luke, observing and recording. Paul, with a big conversion. For me, maybe it's Martha. You know the story of Mary and Martha, right? From Luke chapter 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. I can relate to Martha. Lord, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. These people aren't going to show hospitality to themselves. There's hungry people that need to be served. There's people in our community that don't yet know you. There's hurricane relief and fire relief and tending to victims of violence, sick people to be visited in the hospital. If I don't do this work, who will? Of course, this isn't good. So this class that I took, uh, we had some really great books to read, including one by John Ortberg titled Soul Keeping. And in it, he recalls a conversation that he had with Dallas Willard about spiritual health. The young John Ortberg asked Dallas Willard, what must I do to stay spiritually healthy? Dallas thought and then responded, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. 
I think that's pretty profound and impactful and has a chance to upset everything. And so I'm going to read that again. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. All of us are prone to this busyness and to hurry. We have to be on guard against it. It's not what Jesus wanted, and it's definitely not what Jesus modeled. So we see time and time and time again that Jesus slowed down and stepped away for prayer and for discernment. He regularly prioritized spending time in prayer with the Father. He got up early. He stayed up late. He withdrew socially. He rejected opportunities for personal advancement. He said no to good work. He did all this in favor of connecting with God. In, In John 5, Jesus explained, I can do nothing on my own. I discern what God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me. And then later in John 15, Jesus gives us that same important directive. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Hmm. Jesus knew that there were times to act decisively and with power, but he also recognized the importance of slowing down and spending time with the Father. Jesus knew that power and spiritual authority came out of that connection with God. Where Jesus recognized that truth, I confess my own tendency to rush off, to go do those good things that I think I should do, rather than abiding in the Spirit first, like I ought to do. So earlier we talked about life verses. For years, I have, I've seen mine as 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1 Corinthians 11.1 says, Follow me as I follow Christ. That claim is audacious, isn't it? Follow me as I follow Christ? You see, that's what I want in my ministry. I want to live a life worth emulating. I want to live the kind of life that is so drenched in the presence of Jesus... That imitating me is imitating Christ because that's how I am, that's what I do, and that's the kind of life that I'm leading. The idea is that the people who I influence, they start out by imitating me as I'm imitating Christ, but before long I've stepped out of the way and we're side by side, no longer a linear hierarchical progression, but a group of people, a community, our community, running alongside each other, encouraging one another, lifting each other up as we together follow Christ. But as I've been reflecting on my life, my tendencies, my practices, I've found that I've bought into the lie that glorifies busyness. Looking back at my life verse, I found that the busy life I was living, it didn't look as much like the life of Christ that I wanted it to. For my life to be worth following, I have to be deeply steeped in the presence of Jesus. I have to be more like him and less like the Pharisees who practice good works apart from that intimate connection with God. In short, I have to be a true disciple of Jesus. Let me explain. The word disciple is really interesting in the Bible. It means uh, someone who adheres to the teaching of another, but the intention is really beautiful. One way of describing it is from uh, a Jewish blessing. 
He says, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. In other words, may you have followed him so closely, practiced his routine so meticulously, imitated his life so thoroughly that you have literally walked in his footsteps. And that practice has resulted in the literal dust that gets kicked up from him lifting his heel. That same dust has come to cover you as you closely follow him. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. This intimate knowledge and imitation of the processes and practices of Jesus is fundamental to Paul's call in 1 Corinthians 11.1, to follow me as I follow Christ. So we too should live our lives in a way that so closely emulates, excuse me, So we should live our lives in a way that so closely emulates Jesus that we are being covered in his dust. However, based on the ways that we are living our lives, it seems far more likely that we're going to leave Jesus in our dust. Our busyness, our hectic pace, our well-meaning, frantic, helping and doing, our neglecting basic spiritual practices of silence, reflection, prayer, and Sabbath, we tacitly dismiss Jesus' teaching and example, substituting our own gospel of busy in its stead. Okay, so now what? My goal is for all of us, myself included, to live out our faith in this way that we too would be covered by the dust of our rabbi. I'm embarrassed to admit how many times I keep forgetting and relearning this exact lesson. I keep falling into my own pattern. So I'm personally working on becoming more aware of the ways I tend to subconsciously buy into the gospel of busy rather than the gospel of Jesus and start shifting away from the former and towards the latter. Here's three simple things that we can try to work on together. There's lots more if you want to brainstorm some others, but here's three simple things we can start doing. Number one, make it your goal to hashtag win the day. Make it your goal to win the day. That each day will move us at least a tiny bit closer to Jesus. That we would experience God in some small way, increasing as we go. That we would develop the habits and rhythms that will take us closer to him. So let's talk strategically. For us to win the day, we first have to win the morning. A crucial part of that success means getting up earlier and rejecting immediate distractions. And C.S. Lewis writes about this in Mere Christianity. He writes, It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All of your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. Maybe a modern writing would say, You wake up and look at your phone and all of your notifications come at you and distract you and tell you about what you have to do and what you haven't yet done. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning. All your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in pushing them back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. And so on all day. And if winning the day meant that we have to win the morning, winning the morning begins by winning the night. It means going to bed earlier, not surfing the interwebs or playing phone games until all hours of the night. 
I mean, who else has found themselves at 2 a.m. watching YouTube clips of kittens and thinking to themselves, wow, I need to make some better life choices <laughs> right after this next cat video? This is one of the harder disciplines as I've come face to face with how addicted to our phones we've become. It snuck up on us. But it's part of us now. So I've started making some changes, started leaving my phone behind. Turning it off, you know what my favorite is? Is when it dies on its own. Because then I don't feel guilty. Like the decision's made, I can't help it. No phone for right now, I'm just present wherever I am. Isn't that silly? Maybe try to stay off your phone an hour before going to bed and an hour after waking up. Little practices that can help us be more in tune with the presence of God. What I found is the better I do at winning the day, the more peace I feel, the more joy I feel, and the less I get caught up in petty things, like trying to win the commute. We can choose what we want to work on. Choose to win the day, not the commute. Secondly, Try to seek external wisdom. Based on some things I learned from my class, I'm talking to a counselor, and I'm going to talk to a spiritual director. I've never worked with a spiritual director, but I'm looking forward to it. I found, I've discovered some really hard things from my past that are inhibiting my current relationship with God. It won't be fun to dig up those painful feelings, but I'm very eager to remove those stumbling blocks to my faith. And I've already had a great team of coaches, mentors, and accountability partners in place. It's difficult for us to grow on our own, but as we know, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Don't try to go it alone. Seek wisdom from outside of yourself. And third, try some new spiritual disciplines. Develop some solid habits. What's helped me personally a lot is this thing called the prayer of examine. It's a prayer that you do at the end of the day or first thing in the morning where you look back over the past day or the past weekend and just say, how have I seen God? When was God present in my life? And when, when wasn't he? When was I conscious of God and when had I just totally tuned out? My friend Laura shared on, her, on Facebook that her life verse was Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. She found, through her life verse, by meditating by thinking on it, she found her thinking changed. And in the same way, the more we reflect on God, we reflect on our day and see where God was present, the more that we find God in the present. Your day becomes refreshing in moments that you never would have expected. And by that, I, I also mean even the 4 a.m. feedings. We had one today. Jacob's up needing a bottle, 4 a.m. There are times where it's just, you know, drag yourself out of bed, barely conscious, feed him, change him, change him, feed him, put him back down. But with his intentionality, you find these holy moments in the midst of the craziness of life. And even at 4 a.m., you're able to stop and marvel at this gift from God the little things around us that, if we're not careful, we'll miss. God is present in that moment and in every moment, and it's up to us to try to be more aware of him. 
So earlier I talked about the audacious idea of living a life worthy of 1 Corinthians 11.1, that my life would be worth imitating as I more closely am imitating Christ. I'm here before you humbly, confessing my shortcomings, crushed when I realized my motives were subtly shifting. And if my life isn't getting dusty from following Jesus so closely, then I don't want people following me, lest I mislead them. I'm working on getting my practices and my priorities back in line, and I invite you to join me. I hope that my awakening can serve to awaken some of you and and maybe inspire others. I think that through this, I'm moving a step closer to embodying the kind of life that has the fragrance of Jesus on it. A life that is worthy of calling someone to follow me as I truly am following Christ. So maybe some of my story today resonated with you. Is anyone here guilty of a buy-my-own-bootstrap spirituality? Maybe someone else buys into the lies of a culture that glorifies busyness. Maybe you're in a place where you're so far from God that you can't comprehend what blind obedience looks like. Maybe you're not sure that this God even exists, and so obedience is a silly concept. Wherever you are on that spectrum, please know this. The God I'm talking about is a God of love and of compassion. He knows you. He loves you. And he's calling you to a new or deeper relationship with him. He doesn't motivate with guilt. He invites you with his love. He stands at the door to your heart and knocks, but won't force his way in. Consider opening the door and at least hearing him out. Our next few minutes are dedicated to that. The worship team is going to sing a song over us, and there'll be uh, an opportunity for us to respond. Please use these next few minutes as you most need it. Maybe it's an opportunity to talk with God about how your relationship with him has been lately. Where where have you been hardened? When has God seemed distant? What do you need to give back to him? What do you need to say to him? Or maybe, do you need to spend some time listening to him? Maybe you've intentionally rejected God and he's been absent from your life. Or maybe seemed absent. Maybe you're not sure why you're here in church this Sunday. You've never believed in God, but you recognize that your soul is searching to connect with the larger, the larger something that you know exists, but you haven't been able to find. Maybe try talking to him. What have you got to lose? So we're going to spend the next few minutes in time reflecting, singing, meditating, and praying. You can sit, stand, kneel, however you feel led. Please receive these next few minutes as a gift and engage God how you see fit.